I'm Patricia Pierce. Welcome to the Evolutionary Activist Podcast. We are living at an important moment in our history, a time that is calling us into a new way of being, a new consciousness from which a sustainable, just, and peaceful future can arise. In this podcast, we explore ways to help that future take hold within ourselves so that together we can help it come forth in our world. Our guest today is author, activist, and entrepreneur Judy Wicks. Judy founded Philadelphia's landmark White Dog Cafe in 1983, which became a pioneer in the farm-to-table movement and a model in sustainable business practices. She is founder of the Sustainable Business Network of Greater Philadelphia, as well as the Nationwide Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. Her work has earned numerous local and national awards, including the James Beard Foundation Humanitarian of the Year Award, the International Association of Culinary Professionals Humanitarian Award, and the Women Chefs and Restaurateurs Lifetime Achievement Award. Judy's acclaimed memoir, Good Morning, Beautiful Business, won the National Nautilus Book Award Gold Medal for Business Leadership in 2014. Judy, thank you so much for being with us today. And I thought I would start us off just by asking you to tell us about the title of your book, Good Morning, Beautiful Business. Okay. Hello, Patricia. Good to be talking with you today. Uh, Yeah, the name of my book is Good Morning, Beautiful Business. And I, the, the genesis of that is that during the years that I ran the White Dog Cafe, I had a sign in my closet door that I would see each morning that said, Good Morning, Beautiful Business. And it was a reminder uh, to me of just how beautiful business is, uh, you know, when we put our energy and ideas and care into producing something that our community needs and wants. Uh, and uh, so it was a time I would try to pause in the morning to think about my own business and be grateful for the farm animals and the farmers and my employees and so on. Um, so it was um, just an inspirational uh, sign. <laughs> so um, many years later, when I decided to write my business memoir, I used that as the title. It's great. It's it's. I find it really beautiful that you, that you that you're framing business as something that can be beautiful. And I had the opportunity to to meet you first when you were. Uh, the owner of the White Dog, and experienced that restaurant as so much more than a restaurant. And you really made that your vehicle for building community and making an impact in your local community and then the world at large. And maybe you could share with our listeners some of the things that you did through the White Dog and how that developed for you. Sure. You know, and just to add a little bit more to the title, I always say that... um, I used my business as a way to express my, my love of life, uh, and that's what made it a, a beautiful business, uh, as it does for anyone that expresses their love, you know, through their through their work in that way. Um, so yeah, at the White Dog, uh, we had many programs beside the the daily, um, you know, function of of, co- of cooking and serving people. Uh, we put on all kinds of programs. Um, for instance, we would have table talk. Um, to invite, where we invited authors and um, community leaders to 
talk about the issues of the day, whether it was um, uh, the, the war on drugs or the environment or foreign policy or public education, um, whatever was was in the news and people wanted to talk about. And we had a storytelling series, Real Stories by Real People, where um, uh, folks would just come and tell their story. Um, sometimes it would be a famous Philadelphian telling their life story or Again, if there's something in the news, I say gay marriage is in the news, then we invite a, um, a lesbian couple and a gay couple to tell their story. Um, we did community tours. We did international tours. Our international tours were called Table for Six Billion, Please. That was the, well, actually, when we started it, it was Table for Five Billion, Please. <laughs> uh, the vision of everyone sitting down at the table together um, and, and having enough uh, to eat for everyone and having room for everyone at the table. Uh, in terms of um, you know a democratic situation, um, so um, that was probably the most adventurous uh, program. To we took our customers to places like Vietnam and Cuba and um, countries where there was misunderstandings between our government and the governments of those countries, and then we would um, try to understand uh, how our foreign policy in the United States affected the lives of people uh, in other countries, and then come back and have a program on that. Um, and then our, our, our local uh, sister restaurant tours were uh, to, to build more community and conversation between uh, ghettoized areas of the, of the city. Um, you know, uh, uh, in the barrio where, you know, Spanish is the main language and sometimes English isn't even spoken. Uh, we, we had a, a sister restaurant there. And so we would uh, have an evening where um, our customers would go uh, there to a cultural program of some sort, maybe at uh, Taller Puerto Rico or whatever was in the neighborhood, and then to uh, dinner at the Puerto Rican sister restaurant, and then out dancing uh, at a, um, like a salsa uh, dance party. Uh, so it was a way of introducing the, the, the neighborhood to our customers who are largely from Center City or uh, the suburbs, and then we would do the same thing in an African-American um a community, a, a go to an African-American-owned restaurant, and then out to um, a theater, uh, Freedom Theater, and the, uh, uh, sometimes we'd go there. It was a, uh, the first black theater in the country, I believe, African-American theater. Um, and um, so let's see, what else we had? Uh, those are the I main sort of educational programs, oh, community tours, where we would, uh, for instance, tour um, uh, solar roofs, uh, people that were installing solar roofs. Um, Many, many different um, tours that we would go on locally. Uh, so um, there, there's something going on all the time. Sometimes we'd show films at the at the White Dog, but there was a program almost every week. Uh, and then we would also have celebrations. Um, in the summertime, we had four outdoor uh, parties. Um, let's see, there was um, the Dance of the Ripe Tomato. Uh, it was a harvest uh, a party. Um, and we had a Noche Latina with a salsa band and... Uh, uh, South American food. We did uh, rum and reggae with a reggae band and a curried goat and so on from Jamaica. Uh, and Bastille Day, um, we and um, we would have a French uh, French meal and um, sing the Marseillaise. And we we locked uh, French poodles in the Bastille and liberated <laughs> them. Fourth you know. uh, of July, we had a uh, um, Liberty and Justice for All ball where we did a skit of. Um, the birth of the nation. I came as a, a, a colonial, um, a colonial woman, a pregnant colonial woman, 
and I had a, a sign on my back that said, George Washington slept here. <laughs> then I would get in a bed out in the, in the street that was covered with red, white, and blue flags and lights and whatnot and give birth to twins. One was Liberty and one was Justice. And uh, they would jump up on the stage and do a tap dance, Yankee Doodle Dandy, and then would wheel out the Statue of Liberty and um, light our sparklers and sing God Bless America. <laughs> well, I had the opportunity to go to one of those uh, street parties, and it was so much fun. And I actually, we were sitting across from a couple that we had never met before, and we struck up a conversation and formed a friendship and stayed in touch and got together. And they've since moved to St. Thomas. We haven't yet visited them there, but we are thinking of it. So I just really want to first express my appreciation to you for all that you did to help build relationships. And not only personal relationships like that example, but also international relationships. And I, I, I just find it so inspiring what you did with your, with your business. I think a lot of people think of business as an opportunity to make profit, period. Right. And you looked at it as, as an opportunity to do so much more. And you really uh, pioneered the the local sustainable economy movement. And first of all, you grew up in a small town in Western Pennsylvania, a pretty traditional town, wouldn't you say? Yes, right. And then you had a couple of experiences that, having read your book, uh, seemed to be very formative. And one of those was after college, you went, you were a VISTA volunteer and you went to a remote village in Alaska. And as you look back, do you see that as uh, an experience that really was formative in this whole direction that your life has taken? Oh, I'd, I'd say absolutely. Uh, it was just really an eye-opening experience to live with indigenous people for almost a year, um, in this case, Eskimos. And I, I believe that most indigenous people have a very profound um, relationship with nature, you know, with, with their place in the world. Um, and uh, they also um, have different values than our uh, contemporary societies that are based on uh, sharing and, and um, cooperation, generosity. Um, with, with Eskimos, if you admire something that they have, uh, they'll just take it off and give it to you. So you have to watch out what you admire <laughs> when you're around Eskimos. Um, but it was a very, um, uh, you know, as a young person just out of college, I mean, I was 22 years old, and um, it gave me the opportunity to compare the, the culture I grew up with, you know, with, with, with something else. Um, and that's where I really started to see how um, we actually had the opposite values, where the Eskimos thought it was abnormal if you had more than someone else that you, you know, you, you, would, you would share with them, uh, where we actually admire people the most. If, the more they hoard, the more someone hoards, uh, material possessions and money and whatnot, the more they're uh, looked up to in our society where the Eskimos would th think someone was a total freak if they did that. Uh, it just didn't make any sense. Um, and, and I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I learned so much from that, from, from that experience. And then once you formed the, you founded the White Dog and well, first of all, you talked about your experience in Alaska and, and really noticing how people were really part of their environment and had a relationship with the land. And I know that at some point 
you chose not to franchise the white dog, even though people were encouraging you to do so, because you had developed this amazing model uh, and, and a very successful business, and you chose not to franchise and to stay, just stay put where you were. Can you tell us about that decision that you made? Yeah, well, I, I feel like the, the, the thing that brings me the most happiness um, in business are the relationships that I uh, have with others. And in fact, I feel that that's what business is really about, is about rela relationships, that money is simply a tool, uh, that business is about our relationship with everyone we buy from and sell to and work with, and our relationship um, uh, with, uh, with the land, with, with nature. Uh, and so the thought of having a chain of restaurants or whatever, I realized that I, I would be giving up what was most valuable to me, and that's the authentic relationships I, I had with my employees and my customers and my vendors and so on. Um, I would have to, you have to, and also, you know, in order to franchise, you really have to simplify your business. Um, and I, my business was very complex. Uh, as, as I was explaining all these uh, different programs we had, that's like a full-time job, just doing the programming. So we, we had a very uh, complex business, and which wasn't really suitable to the model of um, chain stores. And that, and that got me thinking about how chains are really like invasive species. You know, they go into other people's communities um, and uh, other people's economies and, and uh, compete with the indigenous businesses um, and, and uh, in many cases uh, smother out those businesses as, as the chain develops across the country. Uh, so I, I didn't want to do that, and, but that got me thinking about how, how does nature grow? Because we do have to grow in order to continue to develop and, uh, and grow in personal ways. Uh, so I, you know, I, I looked into it, and, and nature grows deeper in place. Nature grows to become more complex, not not less. Uh, to become more complex, more diverse, more resilient, uh, more adaptive to the needs of the ecosystem. So I figured, well, that's you know, that's how business should grow. Uh, we should look to see what does my ecosystem need and start that business. Uh, so rather than starting a a white dog in someone else's community. I started a black cat, you know, in my own community. Right. A retail store uh, that that sold uh, locally made products and and fair trade. Um, so because that was something that my my neighborhood did not have. Um, so I just had a different uh, model for growth uh, that I actually do think is more healthy. Uh, and you know, I also feel like times are changing. Uh, with climate change, where we really do need to dig in um, and build sustainable local economies, uh, and, all, and all this, um, my, my modeling at the White Dog got me, and my buying from local farmers got me interested in local economy work, which I've been, you know, d doing since that time. And at what point did you make that commitment? Maybe it was from the beginning to to have relationships with local farmers and to serve as much as possible in your restaurant food that was, uh, that was grown locally. Yeah, that was from the beginning uh, because that's how I was raised. Right before I started the White Dog, I was managing uh, and was a partner in a, a French restaurant where, you know, what was most valuable was, you know, importing uh, Dover sole or, you know, escargot or, you know, fancy cheeses or French wines or whatever. And so I decided I, I, I had a longing for um, 
my mother's cooking and for uh, going to the farmer's market. My, my mother and father had a vegetable garden and fairly large and, and we would grow vegetables. My mother would send us up to the garden to pick vegetables for dinner that night with beans, squash, corn. Um, and she would also go to the farmer's markets and especially in the um, late summer and start uh, preserving vegetables for the winter. So I decided I wanted to start an American restaurant. And back at that point, that, that was not the trend. The, the American restaurants were steak and, steak and potatoes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatnot. Um, so I just wanted to cook a simple food like my mom cooked and um, from ingredients that I bought at the local local farms. Because where, where I grew up was on the, it was a small town on the outskirts of, of farm country. So we had access, you know, to uh, to farm fresh produce, and that's what I wanted. And then I kind of uh, lucked out in that uh, local food and uh, American cuisine uh, became fashionable um, very very soon. I remember seeing an article about Alice Waters out in California with her Chez Panisse restaurant, a, a French restaurant, uh, and and she was buying everything she could. Um, in California, locally, of course, California has a year-round uh, growing season, unlike Pennsylvania. But um, nevertheless, um, she, you know, she started the the new American cuisine, uh, which was really a California cuisine that was based on fresh local produce. And so we kind of caught that wave of of uh, popularity. Um, it was just a really good timing, you know. That, and I think it was really like uh, Alice and I are around the same age. It was sort of like our generation. Uh, was was longing for um, that kind of food, um, you know, to really, you know, not feel like it, in order to have a good meal, you have to ha have it be a French a French uh, restaurant with uh, heavy uh, Bernays sauce and so on, all that uh, butter and richness that uh, you could really ha have more flavorful, more healthy food um, uh, where you really focused on the fresh natural ingredients and used um, – fresh uh, herbs and, and uh, for the sauces and so on. Mm -hmm. And then along with the produce, there's the, there are the farm animals. And maybe you could talk to us about the, you know, the, the, the agribusiness and around farm animals and your relationship with that whole piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Well, that, that was a real turning point for me when I found out about industrial farming uh, and how the animals really suffer. I had no idea. I, I knew about um, uh, free-range uh, chickens, actually, and uh, we had already begun to buy only chicken that was raised on pasture and only cage-free uh, eggs, uh, but i that's all I knew about. Uh, but then, as it turns out, in industrial farming, um, after they started raising chickens and egg production and so on in automated factory farms, basically, then they decided to start doing the same thing with pigs. Uh, to produce pork, you know, and bacon and ham and so on, and and um, keeping these mother sows in uh, tiny little cages where they can't even turn around or take a step forward or backward or feel sunlight, uh, never go outside. I mean, I was just appalled. Uh, I can remember I was listening to a book on tape, um, Diet for a New America uh, by John Robbins, um, and he was describing the horrors of the factory farming of uh, of, of the mother pigs, and I, I got home and I was still listening it on my car. I left the car running so I could continue to hear uh, this. I just could not believe it. And then I, I just I realized that the that the pork I was serving at the white dog must come from the system because if you don't know 
otherwise that's where it comes from in this country unfortunately so i just walked into the kitchen and said we have to talk take all the pork off the menu the the bacon the ham the pork chops and until we can find a, a local farm that raises you know the, the pigs in a humane way and it didn't take us long we we asked the farmer who was bringing us in the free-range chickens and eggs and he knew a farmer that raised pork on a, a traditional way raised their pigs out on pasture uh, where they can sleep in pig piles and roll in the mud and have a you know natural healthy life for as long as they live um, and um, so we switched over to all, you know, pasture pork, and then that led to finding out about uh, the plight of the cow and how cows are herbivores. They're supposed to be out on pasture eating grass and clover and whatnot, and instead uh, they're taken uh, to the stockyards and fed grain that's subsidized by the farm bill, and the poor dairy cows uh, just have probably the worst life of any of the animals, uh, where they're constantly kept pregnant and their babies are taken away, and um, so that we humans can drink their milk. Um, when I found out about that, I was just, you know, just disgusted. So, uh, but th this kind of led me um, uh, in into realizing, you know, how much suffering there was in our industrial economy, uh, and how we needed to transition to uh, local economies where we had personal relationships, um, you know, with the farmers, and the farmers had personal relationships with the pigs and the cows and so on and and um you know that it was really based on caring um and respect and dignity um and not um simply on money and you know um, reducing your expenses at the at the cost of uh animal suffering uh, so um you know that it was really my my love of animals that um motivated me to try to bring change yeah and then and then there was a turning point for you where you realize that if you really cared about the animals, you couldn't use this as your unique uh, marketing niche, being the restaurant that serves locally and humanely produced food, right? So you made, as I recall, a pretty significant shift in your own thinking about that. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yes, that's, that was uh, probably the most important turning point in my life was um, when I was thinking about, I was looking at the menu and thinking, uh, gee, we've finally done it now. Our menu is cruelty-free. All, all of our um, meat and poultry comes from small family farms where the animals are treated with um, kindness and respect. And uh, this is our market niche. This is our competitive advantage. You know, this is uh, all about us. Um, and then I realized that um, if I really did care about the, the pigs and the chickens and the cows and so on, if I really cared about the small farmers that were being driven out of business by the corporate farmers. And if I cared about the environment that was being polluted by the concentration of manure in these factory farms, and if I cared about the consumers that were eating meat that was full of um, antibiotics and, and hormones, uh, that rather than keeping my supply list, we had maybe a list of 25, maybe even 30 farmers that we bought all different kinds of things from, that uh, rather than keeping this as my proprietary information, that I would share this with my competitors and try to get all the restaurants in the town to uh, buy from these local farmers. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it occurred to me that there there is no such thing as one sustainable business. You know, no matter how many um, sustainable practices that we have, that we can we can only be part of a sustainable system, and that we had to work together. Um, to to build that system, 
And up until that point, I thought that the best I could do was to have sustainable practices within my company, you know, like um, having solar on my roof and buying local and um, eco-friendly cleaning products or, you know, whatever. Uh, but then I realized that that's really not enough, that we have to go beyond that and work in cooperation um, in our regions, you know, to build uh, sustainable systems. And that needed, I needed to to move outside of just focusing on my own business to to looking at the whole system. And then as a result of that, you, you founded the uh, Sustainable Business Network here in Philadelphia. And yes. that really is about building an ecosystem of local businesses, I guess you could say, right? Right. I also, at the same time, um, in the year 2000, founded um, Fair Food. Um, and it was through Fair Food that I distributed our supply list. Uh, Fair Food is uh, just recently closed after... 18 years. Um, and a lot of the work was really done because I think our, our local food system is pretty healthy at this point. There's many, many restaurants now that buy from local farmers. Um, so the idea of fair food was to introduce the chefs in our city with our farmers. So we had a lot of different events to like a, a chef's tour of the farms where we rented a van and took the chefs out to the farms and we had chef farmer meetups uh, at the Reading Terminal and other places to uh, connect them. Um, Fair Food produced a, a buy local guide uh, for consumers that listed all the restaurants and stores and C CSA community supported agriculture that people could sign up for. So it's a directory of you know of, of, to local food for um, for for consumers. Uh, and then we also uh, you know worked with the um, uh, wholesale um, accounts to uh, connect the wholesale buyers. Um, and there was an annual annual conference uh, or a fair, I guess, a farm and um, and food fest uh, to uh, introduce the consumers to uh, to the farmers and to all the different products that are locally produced. Not just the raw products, but all the things that are made from raw products into um, in, into a, a food um, businesses, whether they be jellies and jams or bread or flour, um, beer. Um, uh, you know, the ice cream, cheese, uh, just, you know, pasta, all the different things that you can make uh, from the local food. So Fair Food uh, Philly and then the Sustainable Business Network, and you're also now working nationally with with Bali. And what do you see uh, when you look at, at the movement? First of all, it's, I think we in the media, we get a lot of the bad news, and um, I, I don't think we're often given a window into some of the really exciting things that might be happening. As you look at the local sustainable uh, economy movement, are there things that you see that, that you're excited about and hopeful about? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's really taken off. I mean, uh, food really came first, and that was the focus for a lot of people. Um, I think the local food systems have developed, you know, all over the country. Um, the number of farmers markets has definitely increased. Uh, family farms, I hear, are finally starting to uh, increase in number. And because for many years they were going down, down, down as the corporate farms you know, bought, bought them up. Uh, so I think there's, there's a real change there. Um, and also a change uh, in terms of the, the number of uh, local food um, uh, products that are made from local food, um, like I was mentioning earlier about the the pasta and the um, 
beer and whatnot coming from the products of local farmers. So all, I think those things have increased. In Philadelphia, we're so lucky to have just a very vibrant uh, local food system with uh, local products. Uh, one of the projects that I, I'm working on now is the, the Circle of Aunts and Uncles, where we make uh, microloans to uh, entrepreneurs, to small companies that are producing our uh, food and clothing, mostly just basic needs for our local economy. And um, there's just more and more. It's very exciting. Uh, you know, the, the, I think Philadelphia has maybe five local ice cream companies now. They're all buy from local dairies and um, just delicious, you know, grass-fed milk. Um, lo local bread companies, they're buying uh, grains from local grain farmers and a uh, number of beers, uh, beer companies buying from local grains. Um, so it's just uh, exciting. And now there's a couple little grocery stores that carry all, you know, small batch uh, food products, not just uh, our local ones, but small batch products from other um, communities. Because uh, we, we can't always eat locally, but to me it's important to try and buy from small companies rather than from the big uh, corporate, um, you know, businesses so that we, we're supporting local economies elsewhere as well as at, um, at home. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you've, and you've worked also with small farmers, for example, in Chiapas. So you've been involved in, in supporting the work of small farmers in not just here, but elsewhere. Right. In Chiapas, we were working with farmers that were growing coffee. Um, and that was um, a, a project of mine for a while. We, we, um, we helped a, a Zapatista cooperative in, in Chiapas, Mexico, to get their uh, coffee to the market in the United States. And um, that was a very exciting project. And for a long time, we carried their coffee um, at the White Dog. Uh, and um, so that, uh, and also, you know, with our... Um, other important ingredients like um, vanilla and cinnamon, we, we try to get organic and from and products that, that come from small farmers, um, so that it's it's not just uh, we don't want just our own local economy uh, to, to build. But we, my my vision for um, a, the global economy is is to have a global network um, that connects. Um, local economies, uh, regional economies that produce our basic needs locally, uh, but then trade uh, with other uh, communities for things that aren't local, whether it's uh, bananas or uh, coffee. Um, so our, our fair trade relationships uh, for things like cinnamon and, and vanilla and coffee and tea um, um, is, is also very important as part of this, this global network of, of fair trade, which is, you know, uh, win-win um, economic relationships um, between small, you know, small companies. Mm -hmm. So what you're describing is, uh, it's like a grassroots type of globalization. We've got the corporate globalization where corporations are controlling a lot of the, the, the economic exchanges, but you're describing something that is based in sustainable local economies, but also has this global and international uh, aspect to it, as in terms of being a network. Yes, exactly. Instead of having these uh, large corporate um, long-distance uh, supply chains, uh, that we develop our local supply chains as, as much as we possibly can to produce our basic needs locally, and then to develop fair trade long-distance relationships for um, the much 
much fewer things, you know, that we, we can't grow locally, like our spices and so on. Um, so that the, that the world, that the global economy is a, is a very complex a network of small to small relationships around the world, um, rather than these big uh, corporate chains. And, you know, the, the corporate, the large corporations, they, you know, they, they really control so, so much of our, our food system. And, uh, a lot of times you'll go to farm country in the United States, you know, whether you're say Iowa or someplace like that or Kansas, and you can't find any fresh food because the whole corporate ag business is set up to, for export and import. So the, 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 the fields are all planted in monocrops, you know, the, you know, acre after acre of just say corn uh, or soybeans or whatever. And then it's all, you know, mechanized harvesting. There aren't even any farmers. These uh, uh, big machines was uh, run by robots or whatever, harvesting all, all the food. And then it's, you know, shipped out um, to other places. Where in the old days, and, and what's reemerging now, you know, with the family farms is diversified farming. So the small uh, farmer is growing, you know, many different vegetables. It's not a monocrop. Is much better for the soil uh, that way, um, and and then you, you sell these products to your local local community, so that we we all have local corn and local tomatoes and squash and so on, instead of you know um, having it be shipped long distance and then into the the whole corporate supply chain and into the corporate grocery stores and everything is you know controlled by large corporations. We can. We don't have to live that way. Uh, we can, you know, develop a, a local system to s supply us. Um, and so the food, I think, is you know, is definitely um, advancing. And, and now I'd say that renewable energy, uh, especially with the urgency of climate change, is the other thing that you see in the local economies is locally produced energy. Um, you know, with the um, solar, I mean, you can produce uh, electricity right on your own roof. Um, and well, people are growing food on the roofs too, <laughs> but right. the closer to the home, the better. Uh, so that's the other, um, you know, if you look at basic needs, you know, food, energy, um, now with the uh, uh, wind power and solar power and so on that we're uh, producing our, our energy locally as much as possible. Um, and then uh, clothing um, is another basic need. And, uh, you know, in the North, we've been robbed of our, 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 um, our main textile crop, which is industrial hemp. It's been illegal for, I don't know how many years, 50 years, 75 years. I'm not sure. Uh, now the federal government has finally, um, made it legal to grow. There's still restrictions and whatnot. Uh, but finally now we're going to be able to grow our own fiber crop and that's going to be a, a real, um, golden opportunity here in Pennsylvania uh, to have our own fiber crop. So we can have a, a dirt to shirt supply chain, you know, growing the hemp, processing it, making it into shirts and other clothing so we can start to produce our own clothing. Um, and they, what I've been told is that hemp has been illegal, um, not just because it looks like marijuana, it's cousin. Um, it, it's not, um, it can't make you high. Uh, but really the reason it's been illegal is because of the cotton lobby, um, that the cotton lobby wants to keep the north, uh, northern states from being able to produce their own fiber crops, so we'll have to buy cotton from the south. Um, but, but also the synthetic um, fabrics made by DuPont in particular, uh, they didn't want us growing hemp because they want us to buy 
synthetic uh, fabrics. So anyway, finally now it's going to be more fair and uh, we'll be able to grow our own uh, fiber crop. So I have great hopes that we can start local supply chains that will um, help the, the rural as well as the uh, urban populations um, become more prosperous. If we could relocalize our, our textile production. Um, of course, the big, the big challenge here is um, that people want to buy the cheapest possible. So um, they end up buying clothes made overseas by people in sweatshops that are paid pennies rather than paying a little more to employ our own people. Um, and, you know, it's, so it's, um, what we need really is a, a change in, in values. Um, as consumers, we've, we've been, uh, we've been taught that we're suckers if we don't get the lowest price, you know, um, or the highest price if we're selling something, um, or our investments, the same thing. We're, we're taught that we're suckers if we don't get the highest return on our investment. Uh, rather than, than, than saying, no, money's not the way I'm going to evaluate uh, my economic transaction. I want to know, like, if I buy this product, how is it going to affect what I care about? You know, my, uh, my nature, uh, communities, you know, justice issues. Uh, how are the workers treated? Um, is this a local product that can uh, help my local uh, economy and community become more, more prosperous and happy? Uh, you know, how am I going to use my dollars to... Um, you know, build the world I want to live in, basically. Uh, people just don't think that way. So I think that's, we really need, as Martin Luther King used to say, a revolution in values uh, to move from a, a thing-oriented um, society to a people-oriented society. Um, but that's what I'm hoping will happen with, uh, with hemp, that we can start this new industry in a way where people will buy local clothes, locally made clothes that our farmers grow the hemp and our um, workers in the inner city that places where there's now opium epidemics in the old industrial parts of the city where these folks used to work in factories and now there's nothing to do and they're in such despair. I would like to see us, you know, have a textile mill that's uh, producing the, um, the textiles from the hemp that our farmers are growing. And what a incredible change that could bring, you know, for both our rural, rural and urban communities that are suffering to um, bring this industry back. And, and uh, so people have more meaning, um, you know, to their, their jobs and, and, and more prosperity. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just say that I'm finding what you're describing really, really inspiring. And thank you for all the work that you've been doing. And the idea of, you know, maybe we can buy rather than three shirts, we could buy one shirt that's locally produced and people get fair wages. So what would you say to people about how they can connect with this, this movement for sustainable and local economies? How can, how can people support this work and this movement? Well, a couple of ways. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that, um, well, I mean, the simple thing is, is, is buying local. Um, whether it's uh, a, a food, you know, energy by locally produced renewable energy, like my, um, I have solar on my roof, but that that is not enough to um, heat my house in the winter time. So I also buy electricity through the grid, uh, but I uh, contract with a, a third party supplier, uh, which is a local solar producer uh, called Community Energy. Their their uh, solar panels are out in Lancaster County, so it's locally produced renewable energy. 
that comes right through the Pico wires. There's no change in that. You can just call up Pico and say you want a, uh, want a third party um, energy supplier, electric supplier that um, is renewable, has, that uh, is 100% renewable energy. And um, they can tell you what your choices are, um, but it's very easy to do. So that's there's a number of things like that that are uh, people can do in their own households um, to um, buy local energy, to buy local food from the farmers market, and so on. Um, to, there's there are local boutiques in in in, um, uh, in most communities where you can buy locally made clothes. Uh, but um, I'm working on two projects right now that are relevant. Uh, one is the circle of aunts and uncles, uh, and we make microloans. I mentioned it earlier that we made um, loans to um, ice creams. We made uh, loans to a butcher, a baker, and three ice cream makers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, they all buy from local farms. Um, and um, so um, our, our website for that is circleofantsanduncles.com, um, and our entrepreneurs are all listed there, uh, good places to buy from. Uh, but we also we're looking for aunts and uncles that uh, contribute uh, money to our fund, and then we we loan this uh, this money out to our local entrepreneurs at a three percent interest, um, which is much lower uh, than they could find elsewhere. These are entrepreneurs who aren't don't qualify for a bank loan yet, but they don't have the um, family stage money um, that entrepreneurs normally have. Their their first money usually comes from friends and family. So the idea of the aunts and uncles is to uh, substitute uh, for um, the entrepreneurs that don't have friends and family with those resources. So that's that's uh, one of my projects. The other project I have uh, is called Proud Pennsylvania, and it's uh, really about trying to change our state legislature uh, to have a state legislature that supports um, commu community um, and local economy over over the over corporations. Uh, and uh, too often in our uh, state legislature and in around the country and in our federal government for that matter it's um, that um, the politicians are um, bought off by corporations they're the big contributors and so they make decisions that favor um, uh, corporate power and this has gotten out of control I mean I think that's probably one maybe the biggest issue facing our democracy is getting money out of out of um, uh, out of politics and uh, we, we need to have campaign finance reform and uh, and stop this because right now, uh, whoever has the most money uh, controls the politicians. And so they make uh, decisions in favor of corporations rather than in favor of our local communities and our local businesses. So we need to change the politics. So this project that I'm working on is, is geared towards the state legislature. And uh, we endorsed uh, 14 candidates in the midterms who um, pledged not to take money from the fossil fuel industry uh, and to move our state towards 100% renewable, um, as well as supporting uh, the, the other aspects of our local economy in food and, and um, um, fiber, uh, bringing, uh, making hemp legal and supporting um, a local supply chain in hemp, as I was uh, envisioning uh, earlier. Um, so I'm trying to bring these ideas into state politics um, so we were um, eight of our 14 endorsed candidates uh, won election. So now we're organizing a proud Pennsylvania uh, legislative working group among those elected uh, state legislatures, w w legislators, and we want to keep growing that working group to get more and more um, uh, people on board 
um, and uh, eventually we'll, we believe we'll, we'll get the majority and so that we can really turn these ideas into state policy. And for people who are not local, uh, they can, they can seek out similar organizations and networks in their own areas. Yeah. Most communities do have some sort of a local food, um, effort, um, and, and many also have other, um, uh, ways to support local, their local economies. Yeah. You know, and, and for those in Pennsylvania, uh, we have a website, proudpennsylvania.org. Um, and then the national organization, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, uh, BALLE is the acronym, B-A-L-L-E. But the, the website is balocalist.org. Um, and on that website, you can, I think there's a map that where you can look to see uh, what your, your local local economy organizations might be um, in, in various cities around the country. And people can learn more about your work at your website, judywicks.com, and can buy your book probably a lot of different places, Good Morning Beautiful Business. So, Judy, I just want to thank you again for taking time to be with us today and share your journey and your insights. I find them very, very inspiring. Thank you, Patricia. It's been great talking with you.